Hey everybody, it is episode 37 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is Chris joining you from Austin, Texas with Steve. Hey Steve. Hello world. We are excited to be coming at you today with a special guest who was our episode number eight guest, helping us talk about Austin Marathon and Half Marathon strategy at the time. Longtime rogue, former employee as well. James Dodds is joining us. Hey James. Hey guys. The Reverend the Reverend the Dodds. The Reverend Dodds. <laughs> We're super excited to have you on again, sir. Now, for context, for everybody who's listening, this episode is going up on, I believe, August 20th. We're recording it here on August 1st, August 1st, so we've got some upcoming travel, so we're kind of without current events to share with you in our current situation, and we're also a few beers in because this is the third podcast we're recording today. Beard so. up. Chris's so. beard up. <laughs> so, believe it or not. The first time ever I've had two beers before 4 p.m. You would so, all expect Steve to be beard up. So bear, bear with us, but we're super excited to have James on. As I mentioned, he's a longtime rogue and not only a reverend of sorts, but also a philosophical runner, always questioning. And he helped us when we talked about Austin strategy on the mental side of things. So he's a really good coach as coach for us as well. Really good coach, really good at talking about the mental side. And, you know, a runner for loss, a running philosopher of sorts. Today, we just brought him on because we wanted to have him on. That, that's, the, that's the truth. We didn't have a topic. So true. We just wanted to have him on because it's been too long, almost 30 episodes later, and we just needed our James fix. So we were sitting here and we were kind of BSing about what we should talk about. And I threw out a true-false question to the two of these guys just to see what would happen. And so that's our show. We are going to throw out questions and do a little round-robin on running questions, true or false. So it's going to be some philosophical, some maybe coaching and training-related, some footwear-related. Who knows? I don't know where we're going to go with this. But each of us has a bank of true-false questions that we want to get the perspective of the others on. And we're just going to go round-robin through those questions and see where we end up. So similar to the Kevin Leahy episode where we talked about the alchemy of running, I have no idea where we're going to go with this, <laughs> especially a few beers in. So we will see. But I've been pegged to start. First of all, hey, James. Hey, it's good to be here and good to be wanted. <laughs> You're definitely wanted, brother. <laughs> we uh, definitely are excited to have you. All right. So first question, James and I, and I'll give a little preamble here. James and I have a long history of talking sports together, not just running. He is a big fan of LeBron James, the basketball player. But we talk about NBA, we talk about NFL, we talk about college football, we talk about everything because we're both big sports fans. And so the question I wanted to ask you two guys, and I'll start with you, James, is true or false? Runners have it easy when it comes to the bright lights of sports because if you look at the NFL, the NBA, Major League Baseball, every other major sport in the U.S., Basically, they've got more pundits, more lights, more fans, more people watching than than any sport in the entire world, with the exception of maybe soccer. And runners more or less are doing their thing in, in obscurity. So, true or false? Runners have it easy. I got to go with false. Um, I get where you're coming from. And when you phrase the question around just the bright lights of the sports, then, yeah, maybe there is more pressure. Um, when you are the LeBron James, which yes, I am a fan of LeBron James for better or for worse. So I get like psychologically that you carry a lot more pressure because you have to live up to this identity constantly. 
but at the same time, um, I've always felt ru- running is a humble sport and, uh, runners are putting, uh, miles on their legs and they're tearing up their body, uh, just as much, if not more as the LeBron James of the world. But LeBron James is the kind of guy that has, you know, two nutritionists, uh, two personal <laughs> trainers. He's got a personal chef in addition to the nutritionist who's telling him what to eat and someone else cooking it for him. So I think that the resources at their fingertips uh, just alone uh, makes me say false that runners have it hardest. I mean, they're constantly trying to build a life for themselves while also pursuing this dream and putting their body on the line. So I would say they have it harder in that sense. Um, And I'd almost jump a little further on the psychological side and say that when you have that persona in the public, on one hand, yes, it's stressful because you feel like you always have to live up to that personal, I mean, that, that persona that uh, the public expects, but at the same time, that is also something that pulls you along mentally. Uh, you, you know, you have to get out of bed to live up to that persona. So in, I, I know that could go either way. I'm probably 50, 50 on that one. Um, but in some ways that pulls them along and then the financial benefits of it that allow you to, uh, pay for the best recovery aids and, um, the best, uh, guidance on nutrition and, um, training, et cetera. Uh, I got to give it, uh, to the runners, they have it harder. All right, Steve, what do you got? <laughs> uh, you know, in typical Sisson fashion, I'm going to say depends, <laughs> but I'm going to say Mo Farah has it as hard as LeBron James has it. So Mo Farah, for those who don't know, is the best distance runner, current distance runner, and he's about to run into the world championships. When this is done, he will have either done it or not done it. But he has so much pressure because he is the best distance runner, which the English pay a whole lot of attention to. And the English are a whole bunch. They are bastards to their heroes. They, they make what we do to LeBron James. They tear him down. Even, they tear Moff down even harder. The British have this sense of not wanting their... their the, they want to lift their heroes on a pedestal and then they want to tear them down at the same time. And in America, we kind of have that nature. But in America, we sort of have a more of a black-white thing going on too where it becomes very difficult based on race to sort of play those exact games in terms of saying, oh, a white pundit saying, oh, LeBron can't be the best. He's whining, crying, baby, and he wants the, result, he wants the refs to pay attention to this or that. In England, it's not that. They're, they're, the race isn't played the same way, and I think that he's in a scenario where he's just getting pulled down just because every single person in England wants him to be a hero, but they all will also take the piss out of him if he isn't. Now, the flip side of that is, in the United States, they get no credit. I mean, the best, our best runners, I mean, Matthew Centrowitz, nobody even knows who he is. He's the Olympic gold medalist. Just like somebody who's probably the arch Olympic gold medalist in the U.S. from in archery. Nobody knows who the hell that person is either. So it's really weird in the U.S. to have a sport where people are paying attention across the rest of the world, but not in the U.S. And so, in a sense, I say false for the U.S., but true for England. Or the flip of that, whichever the way makes sense. <laughs> so Depends. So... <laughs> As usual, Steve doesn't make sense after a few beers. Okay, so I made sense of my theory there. I'm just not sure if I made sense in sure my argument. True or false? Which is true, yeah, whether which it's true or whether it's false. Well, I'll say this: I agree with you, James, that I think the statement is false. I don't think runners have it easy for similar reasons, but I'll give a slight, maybe different nuance, which is that if you look at the major sports in the U.S. (basketball, baseball, football) 
all of those sports in in at the professional level, especially, and then of course, of course, collegiate level are very structured in that you know exactly how your season plays out. You've got training camp, you've got preseason, you've got defined preseason games against defined rivals, and those things largely don't change. The rules are consistent, and you have a team environment with a coach that's there, that's essentially holding you accountable and keeping you on the path to to being great. But for runners, there's no such structure. There's no such playbook. It it's sort of, you know, as a as a distance runner, middle distance runner, you your race calendar is chosen by you. You may be coached, you may not co- you may not be coached. That coach is chosen by you. You are taking care of yourself kind of from the day-to-day standpoint, not only do you not have the resources, but you don't have the structure of a team like you might have in a team environment with the NFL. Some of these post-collegiate teams are providing some structure, but largely the individual is driving things. And so if you're an individual driving things to try to be the very best at anything, that's hard because you've got one person to be accountable to versus an entire team and construct, not to mention, you know, the media and the fans. So I think my statement is falls runners don't have it easy because there is no defined path for them versus I think the path, if you have success, the path is fairly defined for those at the highest levels of major pro sports in the U.S. And once that path is defined for you, if you want, you can largely shut out the noise. But runners, you know, the solo amongst us are, you know, it's harder. So I, for that reason, I think runners don't have it easy that it's almost more difficult to be successful in a sport that's small and on the fringes than it is to be successful in a sport that's at the, you know, at the pinnacle. It's that double-edged sword, Chris, where LeBron can be frustrated because somebody didn't cover the last second shot, right? Or didn't get to Durant when he hits the shot. So he, do they always have a scapegoat? They can, they can have a scapegoat in their, in their sport. To not get it, but a distance runner doesn't have a scapegoat there. A di- any sprinter doesn't have a scapegoat there. There's no other person that can make that happen. So I hear you. I'm, 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 I'm. You, you're. It must have been both convincing. It must, me. It must have been Kyrie's me. fault, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's always Kyrie's. No, fault. No, I'm a big fan of Uncle Drew too, so I can't go there. But as you, <laughs> as you talk, it, it's like more thoughts come to mind, and um, I'm thinking a little bit of a concept that I feel like carries over to like the everyday runner as well, and that's. Um, this idea of payoffs and it's not f- just financial payoffs because that's there too for like an NBA star or an NFL star. You have the financial payoff, but that payoff of glory or recognition, um, you know, it's worth pursuing and getting that. If you win an NFL championship or a Super Bowl, or if you win an NBA championship, uh, you're, you're going down in history and, and everyone's going to know your name, um, especially if you are a starter on the team. Uh, but sometimes even the payoff in the end, there's gold medalists in, in distance running that half of America, if not 80% of America, can't even name, right? And there's, there's a lot that I wouldn't even be able to name. Uh, so you don't even necessarily have that glory to motivate you either. Uh, and, and we do that as everyday runners where you got to do it because you believe that this is, I guess, what I'm investing in and this is what's going to give me this internal satisfaction. Um, but you're pulling yourself along every single day without any kind of glory at the other end of the finish line. Yeah. Kind of reminds me of some of the debates we would have with our post-collegiate athletes at Rogue AC who struggled getting up for a 7 a.m. workout. 
when you kind of roll your eyes and say, look, we've already had <laughs> 75 athletes here for a 5.30 a.m. workout who went straight to work, who have a family at home, who are running as many miles as you are. Who didn't go to bed. Way more responsibility. Who might have gone to bed at midnight as well, but they didn't have four whiskeys before <laughs> you did. Yeah. Or... Yeah. <laughs> so to your point there, James, that everyday runner is also also doesn't have it easy for similar reasons that I mentioned. All right. So that I kicked it off. It's we're my gonna, turn. We're going to throw it to Steve. So this is a question. True, false. This is a what question for Chris. True or false? Shoes don't really matter. <laughs> we should preface this that we don't know the questions that are coming. So shoes don't really matter. I'm going to say true and you'll probably be surprised by my answer there i am a little surprised because i am a shoe geek because you have like 18 shoes and each one of them (laughs) has a purpose and you know the durometer (laughs) you know the lift you know everything yeah so here's the thing i don't think shoes matter in the grand scheme um but i will say they matter in this way in my opinion your footwear isn't necessarily about keeping you injury free like most People think. They think, well, I need the right shoes so I can be injury-free. I don't think footwear has that much impact on your your injury situation as most people think. So in that way, shoes don't matter. It's like if you're going to be injury-prone, you're going to be injury-prone in any shoe. And whatever shoe you get, it's not going to be a silver bullet. And so for most people think shoes matter that way, and I don't think they do. So I agree with you in that sense. Now, where I do think they matter, and I had a debate, that I'll discuss in a second on this the other day is that I do think your shoes can make you enjoy your running more. So they don't necessarily matter on the downside. They matter on the upside and whether or not you're able to enjoy your run more. Cause I think if you're in the right shoe, that's lightweight and that matches your, your foot motions, you can run more efficiently and therefore be happier on your run than people may think is possible. Somebody asked me the other day, if somebody walked into our store wearing the Brooks Adrenaline, which is a stability shoe with a post that we don't carry because we don't believe in posted shoes, somebody asked me, would I try to sell them a neutral shoe or would I acquiesce and special order them another Adrenaline? And I said, well, you know, first of all, I would do my best with all of my enthusiasm to get them in a neutral shoe with your persuasive powers persuasive powers because believing that and 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 of course they couched the the question saying that what if this person had been happily running in adrenaline for seven years and i said i would still try to get them in a neutral shoe the reason being because i believe that can make them happier in a different shoe and I threw out Plato's allegory of the cave. We're going to oh, get wow. philosophical. I said, look, <laughs> that person's been living in the cave their entire life. They, all they know is the darkness and you know the fact that it's kind of cool to draw on the cave wall every once in a while. And it's cool to have a candle to light out the cave wall. But they've never seen the sun. So when you put them in the sun, they're like, hell no, I'm not going back to the cave. <laughs> and so that's my philosophy as a shoe fitter. It's like, I want to take them out of the cave. Show them the sunshine, the, the sunshine, which to me is that neutral shoe that can make them happier. So no, it doesn't matter for injury, but I do think it matters in having your happiest run. James, what do you think? So I True have or to false. say, shoes don't really matter. Shoes don't really matter. False. But <laughs> so well, let's go with the false first. Okay. So, and this is, this is anecdotal, but I've seen it enough. So I believe in it. Uh, 
on one hand, I have found that in my own personal running, I can run in just about any shoe and be fine, except when I bought completely into low drop or uh, zero drop shoes. And so my calves, this was during a season when I was actually training quite aggressively and I tried to go completely just zero heel to toe drop, um, which is basically a flat shoe for anyone that's not really into shoes. Um, and I remember my, my calves just tightening up like crazy, which limited my ability uh, to execute a workout that day, which was, it was a speed workout. Um, and then that just starts to creep into your head. And very recently, actually, my wife was running in stability shoes and she's never in her life run in stability shoes. She just happened to have a free pair that had been laying under the bed from pacing the marathon maybe three or four years ago. She just still had a pair on her and she went for like three or four runs in them and started developing a little bit, pain, a little bit of pain on the outsides of her knees. So it's funny, I'm taking the complete opposite uh, take on this than Chris, uh, even as much as saying, I think that it can hurt you on the bottom and not necessarily help you on the top. So I don't think finding a magic shoe, and you, you, you talked about it from the perspective of happiness. I'm going to say talk about it from the perspective of performance. I don't think a shoe can make you the best runner um, or the, the lightest shoe on the market is going to give you the fastest race experience. Um, you either had it that day or you didn't. Um, however, if you're someone that's in the wrong shoe, and especially if you're someone like my wife who's run lightweight neutral shoes uh, all of her training life, and then she jumps into a stability shoe by accident thinking it's no big deal, and she starts feeling tweaks on the outside of her knee, her brain just goes crazy, and she starts asking questions. Am I, am I running wrong? Is this me? Am I potentially injured, or is it the shoe? We got her out of the shoe. Uh, she, uh, she spent about two weeks training in a neutral shoe again, and now she never talks about her knee. <laughs> so in that way, I'm saying it can affect the bottom. Like if, you, if you're in the wrong shoe, yes, it could potentially hurt you in that sense if you start developing aches or pains that limit your training. Um, but yeah, no, a, a, a lightweight, ideal racing flat isn't going to make you win the 10K or PR in your next marathon. Um, but yeah, be happy if you can. So I guess I have to ask myself then, right? So uh, yeah. what do you got? I think f absolutely true. Shoes do not matter. This is coming from a dude who's run 10 miles on a trail in a pair of rainbow sandals. <laughs> doesn't, it doesn't matter. It just put shoes on and run. Get out the front door and run. There is that caveat, like you said, if, you can't, if all of a sudden the shoes don't let you run. But my guess is we've become so sensitive to all the little nuances and things that happen in shoes. Um, I just think they don't really matter. I mean, they, and I use the word really because, um, they do matter in some sense, but they don't really matter because the point is put one foot in front of the other, get the miles in, get down the road. You'll be just fine. And I'll also say this. If I guarantee you, Jordan would have had a lot less problem if she would run on a real trail occasionally because though those posted not posted drop no drop would suddenly have no import whatsoever so if you add a little trail running in your mix i think you can run any shoe at all and i've proven that even a few a few 10 mile loops in a and a pair of rainbow sandals will still get you down the road there you go all right james on to you what do you got true or false all right true or false your race day experience or your results on race day are an absolute direct reflection of your training season. 
Uh, it's the, I'm assuming it's coming to me first because we got Chris first there. Absolutely false. I mean, I think that's a, to me, it's false. Um, I think it's an indicator and a key. It's a key. Re- I think the result matters and the result is important to pay attention to. But I know as a coach that there are so many variables that came into play that fitness was just one piece. Um, weather, the mental tenacity, uh, stress and drama at work, um, nutrition, cho- nutritional choices the day before. I've even had athletes that the pre-race or lack of pre-race motivation I provided for them seemed to be a clear indicator of their success or failure in a race. So no, fitness is not the sole arbiter of a race result in any way, shape, or form. There are too many other variables. I do agree it is the most valuable variable. And if you're not fit enough, the marathon is one that is, makes it extremely difficult to transcend fitness to get to a place that's different. But no, I, I think it's false that a race result is a clear indicator of absolute fitness. Short and sweet on that one. Chris, what do you say? Well, you also believe in magic, Steve. So there's I also sure that piece that yeah. makes it false. I'm going to say false as well, but I guess for similar reasons in that there's lots of variables at play. I like to tell my athletes only really after a bad race because you wouldn't you would want to open this up to them beforehand, but there's training results and there's racing results. Sometimes those two things coincide and sometimes they don't. And I think it's important mentally for people to understand that, that for whatever reason on race day, could be weather, could be you know, your dog died the day before. It could be, which those things have happened at Rogue. So it could be oh, a yes lot of bit different things that could play out in front of front of you that might not cause you to have a race result that represents your fitness and in those cases you can't just discard the whole cycle you know a lot of people their tendency mentally is to say well it's all a failure i failed my race therefore i wasted six months of my life training for that race and i have to remind them that all of the work that you've done in that training cycle all the workouts all the long runs all the miles that you've run stays with you and carries forward with you to that next training cycle and it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to somehow start at a higher plane because you always kind of have a little bit of letdown after a big race. But it does mean you're starting from a better place than when you started that initial training cycle. And so you've got to make sure you celebrate those training results as much as you do the racing results. So I agree with Steve on this one. False. Now, I will say I don't, as we talked about in episode 33 with Kevin Leahy, on the alchemy of running. I don't believe in magic. So I generally believe that if you're... I thought at the end of that when you started to say that magic exists. <laughs> I don't know. But I don't listen know. To tape, to listen, listen to the tape, Listen to the tape. I have to go back and listen to it so, again. So I, I generally believe that whatever your outcome on race day, if it's a good one, it is a reflection of the training that you've done. And there's no miracle to get somehow above that, which Steve would, I think, agree to. You I know, agree. The magic. So. So, you know, from that standpoint, I am a believer that the work you do, you know, breeds the results that you're able to accomplish when they come. But at the same time, I'm not going to say that everything is dependent on fitness because, as Steve said, there's lots of other variables. So it's just an excuse. <laughs> Reason, not an excuse. <laughs> what do you so got, James? James, I, yeah, I James answer, your, answer, answer your own question. So there. I agree with you guys in that the answer is false. Um, and I love that we got the coach coming out of both of you. I think I, I, as a person try to, uh, believe like Steve and operate like Chris. Um, that's just 
one of my ways of approaching life. But yeah, I think that I've seen with athletes that have coached and, and even in my own personal journey, probably in the first two, three years of running, I think that, um, and I feel guilty giving the answer false because I actually start almost every season off when I'm coaching marathoners with this idea that your race will be a direct reflection of your training season because it's probably the number one controllable and you hit on that, Steve. So, um, but I still land on false simply because I have seen uh, athletes actually take that to a point. The good student athlete is what I call them, and I was the good student athlete for a, for a season. Uh, you feel like if you control every single variable within your training season and you do every everything right and you execute every workout, then somehow that guarantees you the positive race day that you want. And for a lot of reasons, um, uh, you know, you may not get that result. Um, but but also what I want to add in there, because you already touched on them, like it, it could be a lot of things. It could be a bad day, hilly course, um, your dog died the day before, whatever it may be. But even uh, as an individual, the way we approach races, um, I remember going through a season of my training life where I had to realize that the, the number one workout of the season was 26.2 miles at MGP <laughs> assigned on race, race day. day. Exactly right. and, and anyone who so thought true, that James. their training approach would guarantee them anything on race day and they didn't come in ready to execute the number one workout of the entire season, you're basically screwed. You know, there, there's no like, uh, uh, there's no just like pat on the back that says, great season, now race day's a freebie. You have to come in with a mindset for race day, whether it's an openness to magic or an ice cold attitude of execution. Like I'm just going to go out there and do this. Like I've never done it before. Uh, whatever it may be, uh, maybe a combination of both. Uh, you have to take race day as absolutely serious as you do your entire training season. I love that. Number one workout is 26.2. That's what we always say. And somebody, people ask me all the time, what's the best 5k workout I could possibly do? Run a 5k race. What's the best 10k workout I could possibly do? Run a 10k race. I mean, <laughs> that's pretty simple because you're just going to ask you to actually do it and execute it for 20, for that distance. But we can't actually ask our runners to run 26.2 miles at race pace in preparation for a marathon because it's a little bit of a different beast. But yes, it is. that's a great. That's great. All right. So as I said, we didn't plan these questions, and I think it's appropriate though that my next question for you guys comes on the heels of that one, James, because I think it if it dovetails dovetails nicely. So, and I'll take it back to you, James. True or false? You are only as good as your last result. Well, that's a that's just a flip of the last one. That's <laughs> interesting. Yeah, I'm going false again, and I I want to gather my thoughts, but um, you know, fresh off of that that last statement, um, you know, I've had really good uh, training cycles where you know maybe I felt fitter as an overall athlete. I lost weight. You know. I'm happy in life, um, and race day just didn't go the way I wanted to. And and race day can be a mixed bag. Gosh, as as words are coming out of my mouth, I'm already like, wait, am I contradicting everything <laughs> I just said? This is what I love about the true or false. It's like awesome. <laughs> yeah, I love it. And they and they obviously split split you right because there's ways <laughs> to see it from both sides. But um, no, I gotta lean false simply because I actually buy into. I'm gonna just kind of go on a tangent now. But I buy into a philosophy that you are, you know, you're worth who you are about 80% of the time. I, I'm not a big moment guy where I can show up and dazzle someone 
in one single moment, nor on race day do I have like uh, a fiery potential that magic's going to just come from within inside of me. Um, I just try to be as good as I can almost every day. Obviously, I don't execute perfectly every single day of my life. Uh, but I think the world's a better place when people are trying to be as good as they possibly can be about 80% of the time. Like you don't have to make an A plus in life. I think if you can deliver B minus to B average uh, every day of your life, the world's going to be a pretty good place. So just trying to isolate who you are as a person. And then of course, back to the sport, isolate who you are as an athlete or an individual based on one single time frame. It's not fair. And I, w- I wouldn't want to judge myself by one single event, much less my last event. Uh, I always like to add color to my last event, whether it was good or bad. All right, Steve, what do you got? So I'm going to take this from a different bent, um, not for devil's advocate's sake purely, but more from this, line, this side of saying, I think there's a really important thing for athletes to understand. And so I'm going to say it's true that you're only as good as your last result. And that's the reason I say that is because it sort of falls under the training principle of the great and inestimable writer and theoretician, um, Mr. Jack Daniels, has stated that he won't allow athletes to train at a V-dot number, which he uses as a number, that's, that they haven't executed in a race result. And so I used to, I used to, I used, my first year I coached at UT, I was so scared to death of coaching those athletes that I was going to screw them all up. And so I just used Jack Daniels straight, straight Jack, straight Jack Daniels. (laughs) I love straight Jack Daniels. (laughs) Because I didn't want to cheat it. And I was just so many, so I I found myself, I had two really talented athletes in that group, Uh, many talented athletes, but two athletes who were performing at a really high level near the end of the year. And I wanted them to feel as good for their race, going into the race, that they were going to be prepared for what they needed. So I started cheating his, his VDOT scale to mentally prepare them. And they fell apart at the end of the season. And when I went back to look at it, I get, went back and said, you know what? I cheated them by needing them to have some magic or some excitement or some feel like they were ready. When really what really needed to happen is they needed to do the work. And they were only as good as the work they had done. And so they shouldn't run workouts that weren't indicated by the race that they ran. So many people want to base their training on, I've run a three, I want to run a 330 marathon, but I've run a 345. You're a 345 marathoner. And if, if, if you're good enough, if you've run enough marathons over time, you'll realize pretty quickly that you're, you'll know where you are. And more often than not, people really are 345 marathoners. They're blowing smoke up their own ass about the fact that they're 330 marathoners. They just want to be that. And so from a training perspective, you need to be what you've run for at least the first half to three quarters of any training phase that you do. So yes, an athlete is only as good as their last result because training should be based on that. Now, is the athlete, the person, only as good as that result? Well, we're, I'm not, I didn't ask if a person was a good person. I didn't ask if people were 80% to B minus on their day, to give James a little shit there. I said, you wanted X, and so you need to train, you need to train at where you've been, not where you want to be. If you train at where you've been, you'll stay injury-free, you'll move down the line further, and Jack Daniels proves that time and time again. And anytime I've ever tried to cheat my athletes that way, it hasn't worked. 
Now, I've changed my training theory with marathoners because it's so many variables that I now use a range of paces, but they really are, it really is focused on asking those athletes constantly to be where they are. And that is the hardest thing a coach can do. It is so hard to do it. So, Chris, how about you? As a race, so what do you feel about this? As a runner, an athlete myself, I got to go true on this one. You're only as good as your last result. I am a three-hour marathoner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I've run 245, but that was in 2013. I just ran three hours in Austin this year. I'm a three-hour marathoner right now. That's the way it is. Now, I will say that occasionally as a coach, I put on the hat of this being false to try to talk an athlete off the ledge as needed to kind of maybe sweep a result under the rug that we didn't like to to keep them in the game. But for me as an athlete, it helps me to live this way. It's like, look, I haven't earned the fact that I can, I've run 245 four years ago. I mean, I haven't earned that. I can't go run those paces as you said now. If I did, I would hurt myself. So I've got to earn that again. And I'm, on, I'm in the process of doing that. It also motivates me because it's like, you know, I'm hard on myself as it is. And for me to sort of beat myself up a little bit and be like, look, you're a three-hour marathoner, asshole. You got to get back in your game. Then that helps me stay motivated. And it's accountability and, it's and accountability. motivation. Yeah. yeah. Now, some people, that might be too hard on themselves, but that's the way it works for me. So I agree. As a runner, absolutely true. You're only good as your last result. As a person, I agree with you, James. It's a little bit broader than that for sure because we're not defined by our racing results necessarily as people. But there we go. All right, Steve, back to you. Next right. question. So uh, so I'm going to go totally different direction with this one. I'm going to ask you, James, the universe or God, however you want to describe it, has a plan for you. True or false? Oh, shit. Oh, this is dangerous. <laughs> The Reverend. I'm glad we went to the Reverend first. Oh, gosh. So this is really hard to, <laughs> to basically state publicly. I'm happy to answer it. But um, <laughs> so the question was the universe or God. Has However you want to describe it, whether you think the universe, yeah, or you want to, depending on where God. your faith base is, that, that there's a plan, a bigger plan for James. There's a plan out there for you. All right. I'm going to answer it honestly. Absolutely not. It's false. Um, I think that our desire to believe that leads us to believe that. And so there's a, there's a form of motivation and fuel that comes when you hope and when you believe. Um, but I want to walk through life. I want to walk through training even um, good days, bad days with eyes wide open and accept the reality in front of me. And I believe there's a lot of evidence out there uh, to support that people want something more and want to believe something more. And there's even evidence that when you do believe in something more, uh, you're healthier. But that doesn't mean I can manufacture belief because I know belief will help me, right? And Absolutely. so, And so I, I would say, you know, honestly, if I answer the question honestly, false. Um, but if you can somehow buy into something because it'll pull you along, then I'm really happy for you. And, you know, and, and I totally get, I didn't ask, I didn't ask other people. I just asked for you. Yeah. Well, there you go. (laughs) Chris, I wish, but no, (laughs) this one's tough. I will say, I don't know. I, I, I fall in the middle on this one because there's part of me that says, 
I want to believe that things happen for a reason or that we're somehow connected. You know, you talk about magic from a running standpoint, and there are times when I believe in magic or God or universe things happening to connect people or events or energy to each other that make me believe that there's something bigger that's guiding us all. Um, but then also because you've been there and you felt that. Yeah. Because I've been there and felt it or felt like, you know, you've had, you know, there could be coincidence, but you have those moments where you're like, that can't be coincidence. There's too much that would have to line up to make that happen. So, so I can see that side of things. I can also see the purely scientific, you know, we're all only a product of chemical reactions inside of our bodies and everything that we do reaction wise and, and the way we interface with our world is completely dictated by our biology. I can, I can see that side of things as an analytical scientific person as well, which would lead to lead you to believe that no, there's no plan from the universe or from a God. So I'm agnostic. I don't know. I want to believe that we're connected either by the universe or by God to, you know, to each other in a way that, you know, has some sort of coordinated plan, but I don't know. What do you think? I don't, I believe, no, there, there is no, the universe or God does not have a plan for me, but I do believe that the universe or God wants me to be the best me I can be. And that if I, not that it's a sentient, knowledgeable being, but more along the line, my being the best person I can be creates synchronicities and opportunities that put me in so many amazing and synchronicities, in other really positive experiences with other people that have made me feel like I am connected. And so I don't feel like there needs to be a quote-unquote God or universe overriding, making a plan for me, but that if I'm doing the best I can on a day-to-day basis with my life, which I totally bail on that so many times, so many times I choose the easiest route rather than what would be the best version of me. But when I am operating on the best versions of me, and you know, Rogue and our experience here at Rogue, the fact that I have the two of you two in my life, the fact that I have Ruth in my life, the fact that I have this piece of property in Colorado, so many of those things that are now making my life so meaningful came from me chasing the best form of me and trying to be the best me I could be. Um, And if I ever forget that, I always fall back on the rogue experience and what happens here on Saturday mornings, which sometimes as COD, when you're the head coach on that day, it feels like a lot of pressure to get people up and out. And then I just take a deep breath and feel the energy of the people in the room and know I didn't create a place for them to be. You did, Chris didn't create a place for them to be. James didn't create a place for them to be. But yet here we all are in the same place and this thing's going to happen, right? I think in a lot of ways, it's like my church experience growing up was so, I grew up in a strict fundamentalist background. And so going to church, it was so much about the ritual being important. And then I realized the ritual is actually for the people to be free. And like what we're doing on Saturday morning is creating opportunities for people to be the best people they can be, be the best version of themselves. And that's why there's like this great feel, that thing that we feel. You know, we've had that at Team Rogue where our team has been in that scenario. Think about the 2000, what was it, 2000 and 
six Texas football team with uh, being led by Vince Young was it 2006 2007 it was technically the 05 05 when we won the champ when we won the championship that year like you could feel the way that game was going it was like God didn't have a plan for those 11 men on the offensive side of the field but when they had that one person being the best version of him he could be in that moment you could see them winning so I don't know that's how I see it. I don't see it as a sort of an on high, but more of a collaboration, but it requires vulnerability and me being in the place I need to be. To all those people who just went down there, you did not know we were going into <laughs> philosophy 101 or religious studies 101, but I decided to go a different direction there. The point anyway. that you make, though, is that if you're, no matter what side of this you're on, if you focus on being the best person that you can be, then, then the universe then it does have a plan for you. Then, well, and then it doesn't really matter whether you believe it does or not. It's going to play out. Correct. Ooh, that was deep. Glad I'd had a couple beers. James, 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 what do you got? Give next? us, a, give us. A, are you going to go total philosophy, or are you going to make a step on a? I have a feeling on a, James on a, just on a, came up with a banana peel. Are we no, going to step would, on a banana love, peel? I would love to camp out on that one, and I and I love what you had to offer there, like pursuing the best you can be, and there is something magical or. There's that it factor or there's things like chemistry in life that we can't deny. Um, so I got kind of excited there and would love to talk about that for hours. But my next question is, variety is the spice of life slash training. So we can pull it into training because this is a running podcast. But variety is the spice of life or variety is the spice of training. The more you change it up, the better your training is. Uh, true or false, Chris McClung. That's a resounding true for me, I think, on many, many different levels. The first statement I'll make is that, yes, there's some foundational training principles that we believe in, and those don't change. You know, I think those are, well, I mean, we're learning, so they evolve, but fundamentally they haven't really changed since the beginning of Rogue's founding. That being said, unless you add spice on top of those foundational principles by mixing up workouts you know for example you might need to work the same aerobic zone but by doing it in two different ways on different days that variety is better than doing two of the same workout twice so variety is a spice with workouts working in a similar zone i think as we talked about on our last episode with pete ray Working economy year-round where you're working a little bit of different energy systems year-round is really important so that you're touching a little bit of speed year-round no matter how much you're working on building aerobic development and base building. So it's important for economy's sake. I think variety is the spice when it comes to running footwear. We talked about footwear already, but the only science as it relates to injury prevention and running shoes that is definitive is that you change your shoes more frequently than others, you'll be more injury-free than others. So that's definitive science, but there's no definitive science that says a stability shoe or a neutral shoe is going to keep you injury-free. So variety is spice with footwear. That's important. I think variety is a spice with the routes that you choose, mixing things up to keep it fresh for you mentally. I think mixing things up from a racing standpoint, doing different distances is really important for long-term development. So on many, many levels, I agree that that's a true statement. Variety is the spice in training. Steve? Variety is the spice of life slash training. True. In training, everything is adaptation. Once you've 
hit a hit a plateau, hit a a specific workload in training, the human body needs an adapta- an adaptation in order for it to improve. If you keep doing the same thing over and over again, it will stagnate and you will no longer see improvement. So never should you do the same workout twice in a cycle unless you've moderated or changed one of the variables in it. For example, six times a mile at your 10K pace. If you're not going to get faster at your 10K pace the second time you do that workout, then you need to be sure that you've limited the recovery in that workout, even if you run the same pace. But to do six times a mile with a two-minute recovery and do it two or three times in a cycle will guarantee you that you get plateaued or stagnated. Instead, you should do either speed the pace up on those six, on those six do a cut down on those six, or adjust the amount of recovery that an athlete gets in those. Something needs to change in order for the body to adapt and get fitter. In training, that's for sure. In life, absolutely. Though we as human beings really do stress about change, it is happening. Like everything's changing. Like your hair has grown since you were in this meeting. On my beard, but your fingernail is growing. My mustache, which is currently working, is growing as so we're changing all the time. And so to expect things to be the same, we need variety because variety is happening anyway. So I could see somebody arguing, saying life changes enough already. I could just keep it all simple and keep it all straight. Uh, I can promise you, you need other things in life, whether it's relationships or your own space. Um, you need change. I, I think the only, only, only my dogs like when nothing changes. <laughs> well, as a man who loves his routine, James, how, where do you land on this one? Yeah. So. Based on the way you guys answered, I, I feel convinced at this time. Um, when I asked the question, I probably would have leaned um, false. Uh, but yeah, from a training perspective, I get it. Yeah, you have to constantly stretch the body in order to improve. Um, but there is a mantra that I keep buried in the back of my mind at all times, and that's consistency trumps intensity. It's something I pass on to athletes because I know if they don't show up every single day, like good, good days can happen without me planning on it and bad days can happen as well without me planning on it. And so maybe I'm going to that angle you just brought up, but because there's so much changing around me, I try to be as consistency as consistent as I can uh, for a season. And then a season itself actually rolls over and changes and I have to adapt to it. So sure. Um, but I guess my final statement might, might be that maybe variety is just a little overrated. Um, we can go around chasing the new thing at all times, but um, showing Don't up. Go chasing waterfalls. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, I love it. <laughs> I do. So I think variety is important to maximize your potential, but but consistency is underrated for sure. If variety is overrated, consistency is underrated. And as a coach, there is something to be said to tell people just, hey, go bang out the miles. Nothing, yeah. There's nothing sexy. Just go bang out the miles. Yeah, and there's something to be said about those athletes who've been doing it for a long time and being able to break into that area where, um, you know, the rate of diminishing returns, um, you know, if you've run your 245 and, and, and heard that in order to run a 243, you've got to work just as hard as you've ever worked just to get that two-minute difference. I, the, the Paul Terranovas, the Allison Maxis of the world, I, when I look at them and I, I, the uh, B-Morts of the world, 
I mean, I see him just putting in the miles every single day, every single Saturday, at, you know, uh, 5 or 5.30. A lot of you guys are included in that, but but still, it's just like their, their ability to buy into that consistency just for a two-minute uh, PR is somewhat fascinating, and the only way to pull myself towards that is to try to buy into this idea of consistency. And so maybe it doesn't mean that variety is the spice of life. Oh, that's false, because, yeah, they have variety in their training. Um, however, their ability to show up year after year after year after year and put in hard miles, even uh, sometimes more miles than the season before, doing the same damn thing, it's what's made them so good and, and so great. Well, you just brought up Allison Maxis, and I think she's a perfect example of how variety is the spice of life. Since she is currently running at the best that she's ever run as she's getting a little older, um, no one could call Allison Maxis long in the tooth at this point, but she's definitely getting older as a as a distance runner and she is in her experience of run, doing her rogue expeditions on a consistent basis is finding new life in her racing and training more of motivated by it she's busier than ever chris she's got more we talked about this going into her race at vancouver we were we marveled at the stresses she was able to handle the number of balls she had up in the air um the variety of training locales locations and conditions that she had to deal with and yet she seems to be thriving and running at her best she's getting ready to go after one of the uh, probably the biggest race result biggest run result of her of her career to this point so you know we have real examples where yes but the reason allison got there was because she was consistent so yeah it's it they're they're, they're hand in hand right yes and not either <laughs> or <laughs> that's right i'm gonna take chris's uh uh as a new one-liner i'm gonna take chris's thought and say okay from now on Variety is variety is the spice of life, but consistency is underrated. There you I go. like that. <laughs> there you go. I'm glad we got to resolution on that. Okay, next one from me. True or false, and I'll take this to you, Steve. Running is for everyone. True or false? Gosh, that's a that's a good one. Running is for everyone. I'm gonna I'm gonna say true. Um I think that evolutionarily we all are designed to move through space and anybody who's read the book why we run it, they will they will see evolutionarily they will see the biology behind this in that no matter what our somatotype no matter what our body is whether we're ectomorph endomorph uh mesomorph if you're a, the size of a football player or the size of a, a teeny tiny little little thing i think we have built into our hardwiring evolutionarily a need and desire a need to move through space as runners so um that one i think got stumped me for just a little bit because i think to the people i know in my life who have told me i hate running and i thought you know what almost all of them had they been introduced in a more conducive, positive, or having a mountain lion on their tail, they might they might very well have a different viewpoint about running being for everyone. And I do know, based on studies and on my own experience, that I fight this battle on a consistent... I have fought this battle on a consistent basis about whether I am still a runner or not. Recently, I've come to the recognition that no matter how much I want to deny, I am. I really am. And it is... cut. I am made for it. And I do truly believe the answer is true, that everyone, 
everyone is made to run. James, what do you think? Yeah, I'm going to lean that direction as well. Um, there's too many kickbacks. I mean, you're healthier. Maybe not everyone's made to marathon, right? Maybe, maybe not everyone wants to pursue that as a goal. How we got to the number 26.2 or even 26 miles originally, like, or these, these you know, markers of a 10K or a 5K, whatever it may be, like, maybe not everyone's geared towards participating in those events. Um, but there are too many psychological kickbacks and then just physiological benefits to our health. Um, it's just hard for me to deny it. And I actually uh, daydream at times, like no matter where someone is with an injury, I'm always, I, I had done some um, PT classes in the past just to see if that could be a path for me. And so I'm always thinking of as ever, thinking of an individual, if they can walk, then somehow they can run and how to move them along that continuum, whether it's certain exercises um, or it's a training methodology in order to get them to a certain point. So my brain's always like wrapped around like how to move someone on that continuum, even when I'm just driving or daydreaming. And I guess like you said, recent epiphanies, I was at Thunderbird Coffee very recently, went for a three-mile run and had a beer afterwards. And there is no high like the combination of <laughs> that is so true. Paired with that first beer, I mean, that's you do just... have to worry about the coffee on the front end of that. I've had a few <laughs> runs where I overcaffeinated before a run, and I was like, oh, oh, that do you? I hadn't had that experience until I'm sort of a, I'm sort of coming back to running myself that way. But it is interesting. Got to be careful with the coffee. But the beer at the end is sublime. <laughs> you guys are convincing. <laughs> that was pretty good. You know, there are times when I've said that that statement is false because some people come to me and they say, well, I want to run. And I, and I will ask them, you know, why? You know, what's your connection to the sport? And I certainly believe that everyone should give it a shot. But as far as a mode of exercise, I believe that it's not necessarily for everyone. But some people are going to prefer spin classes or swimming or going for a bike ride outside or maybe yoga or something else as a movement practice. But that being said, even though it may not be a form of exercise for everyone, I do think it is for everyone in that we were all born to do it. And if you think about when I was a kid, I used to think of running as punishment. Because when we played soccer, I had a coach who was notorious for the fact that if we gave up a goal. Depending on how many goals we gave up, we had to run a certain number of laps and practice that next practice. And so I was often doing running as a form of punishment, or at least that's the connection that was in my head. But really, I was running all the time on the soccer field. You know, they say up to 10K, you know, if you're on a full-size pitch in a 90-minute game. So, so I was running like crazy, but I wasn't thinking of it as running. And for most of us, that's how we're introduced to the sport, by playing as a kid, playing tag or playing hide-and-go-seek, or doing something where we're running, but we're not thinking of it as running. And in that sense, I think running is for everyone because we're all made to do it. As a form of exercise, not necessarily, when you put it in that context. But you guys convinced me. You're right. It is for everyone. I'm glad I asked <laughs> that question. I was, I was almost, I almost passed it thinking we might not get anywhere, <laughs> good to get, yeah. we might not get anywhere good, but we, we went to a good spot there. All right, Steve, you're next. I went from super philosophical to, to eminently practical. So this one's for you, James. The marathon is more challenging mentally than it is physically. True or false? Not a race, but the marathon specific. 
it's so hard to land on either side of that. The marathon specifically is harder mentally than it is physically. I'm going to go true with the caveat that if you're physically prepared for it, like there, there is a physical component. Um, and the reason why it's hard for me to answer that is because I, I've heard that, oh, the marathon's all mental too many times to the point that people think they can overcome uh, race day with the right attitude. I think once you've gotten your body physically prepared for the race, then yes, it's mental. Um, and on a lot of levels, it's mental because, um, you know, you have to pace it out and plan it out so well. The things you do in the first six miles of a marathon can drastically impact the things you do late in the race. Um, so if you don't have a form of mental control uh, on the front end, you can ruin the rest of the race itself. But then on the back end, no matter how well executed it is, it's still 26.2 miles. And you're going to get into a space that uh, because of physical reasons, it's, fi it, it's physically tough. It's going to take you to a place that's going to hurt and it's going to draw up a lot of mental drama. And those who are mentally prepared for it and willing to go to the extreme can overcome. I, I don't know that it's possible to actually reach our physical limitation as a person. I mean, I've had some bad, bad races that towards the end, I didn't think I could take another step. And then yet a half an hour later, I'm walking around with friends in Chicago laughing about the day. So I don't even know if that, that it's possible to run up against your true physical limitations, which leads me to believe it has to be mental, mental then. So you, 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 you true or false? The marathon is more challenging mentally than physically. True. Did I say false? No, no. I was oh. just made, wanted to make, you, you <clears throat> did your little, you did some nuancing. So I just wanted to make sure I heard you. Very convincing. Good job. What do, what, what, what do you say, Chris? So if I think back to my two fastest marathons, 245 and a 246, 10 years apart, in the first one of those, when I was 24 years old, I got to a dark place in that race about mile 16, not where I really expected it. I expected it to be in the last six miles. I happened to be running with a friend of mine, and we were running it together, and he was feeling pretty good at that point. So I just told myself, if I just stay on his heels, then I'll be okay. And so that's what I did. I kind of used him as a sacrificial lamb of sorts. Just stayed attached to his heels for the next, what would be about eight miles until about mile 24. And then he started to fall apart. <laughs> so my security blanket was gone and I ended up, closing that race out because at that point I could feel the finish line. I was close enough where I could start to feel the finish line. And I beat him in that race. But, you know, hats are off to my friend Kevin for, for getting me through that. I would have never PR'd that day if it wasn't for him dragging me for those eight miles. But it was all it was all mental. Yeah, I was physically prepared, but it was all mental. I could have easily quit in that race. I could have easily said this is not my day and just let him go and that would have been it and so absolutely mental my next pr 10 years later in 2014 running solo in bryan college station we've talked about it a little bit before in this podcast i felt like absolute dog shit in mile four of that race so even earlier and went into a place of just trying to relax and kind of self 
and, and meditate on the run to see if I could find a rhythm. And four miles later, I did. And from eight miles to the finish, it was one of my easier marathons ever run. But if it wasn't for me being able to get in, right, in the right headspace in the midst of struggling from miles four to eight, there's no, I, there's no way I would have been smooth enough to finish and PR that day. So in my experience, yes, you have to be physically ready, but then it's all mental, as James said. So true for me as well. Well, I'm going to be the devil's advocate here. I don't Ooh. agree with you guys. Here I think go. the marathon is more challenging physically than it is mentally. Because I think that you alluded to this, James. You alluded to what the marathon, where it takes you. And I think it's the physical things that happen that toss the mind in the place where it goes. You're always going to go mental. That's why we say, it get, and so I can see the argument that you're saying, Chris, is that it, the mental will be the end, of, end game. And I do believe that the mental will be the end game. But where the physical hits, what happens physically, is the reason why we get to that threshold where the mental becomes, comes into play. And the further we can push. So here's a guy who talks about magic all the time. Here's a guy who talks about getting mental preparation, how important the mental game is. I still think it's far more valuable for our average runner, for the people that we deal with on a day-to-day basis, whether they're beginners or they're all the way where they're trying to get Olympic trials qualifiers. You get those athletes. When they, if we can get them as physically fit as we possibly can, we're, gonna, we're going to, considering other variables not coming in too much into play, we're going to get them much further down the road to where that mental game starts to play out. So I think it's more challenging physically because we would not have these games be played in our minds if it were shorter or if we weren't stretching ourselves to a, further, to a tougher spot. The reason we have those challenges, it, 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 it's, so, it, it, it's so interesting to me when I ask athletes, Chris, a couple of years ago I asked you to do an 85, 90% run as you, would get, you wanted to get a BQ. And I remember you telling me, so I'm kind of making the argument of being mental because I, I gave you the argument of saying, I said, hey, let's go do this. Let's just go run 85%. Let's get three hours on the nose. You get your automatic, you're going to get your BQ. You'll be just fine. And you said to me afterwards, you're like, that was way harder than I thought it was going to be. And you were like, it was mentally really, really difficult. But, but I still truly believe you weren't necessarily physically ready for that three-hour marathon. But because you knew what you wanted to get done and knew you knew where you wanted to be, you made it, you you made it happen, right? So you transcended it. But at the end of the day, it is more physical than it is mental because you've got to start there. That's where this whole thing begins. That's my argument. Steve is chasing his tail over there. <laughs> I, lo- I love it because it's kind of a chicken or egg thing. And I, and I like that you brought that up. It, it wouldn't be such a mental, mentally tough challenge if it wasn't first physically. But now I want to like, if I can, narrow in on something then because you guys have talked about breaking the two-hour uh, barrier for the marathon. Mm-hmm. So, so I want to position the question in such a way that makes it hard after answering the way you just did and say, have we failed to break two hours in the marathon because it's so physically challenging or uh, no, no, no. Is it humanly possible? Is it physically possible to break the two hour mark in the marathon? I, I'm, I'll, I'll answer that first. Absolutely. Yes. Ilya Kipchoge is the greatest human example we currently have of a person trans being a machine like he is that race if you go and watch his run 
He was a machine. And a few little variables along the line just made him miss it. And the first thing he says when he comes across the line is, give me another shot. Put me back in, coach. I can get this done. He's still talking about he's going to get it. He's going to make it happen. Yes, it's absolutely physically possible. Now, of course, is it physically possible under normal race conditions? I think we're a good long ways away from that. But if you're able to do it under perfect conditions, eventually the humans are going to advance enough. But they're going to advance in some kind of match of mental and physical compatibility. It's not like they're suddenly going to just immediately jump to that level, right? They're going to have to see race results, as we talked about, getting that race result in order to see that they can jump to the next level beyond where they are. Because I still disagree with Chris. I still think you can train to one level and perform just above that level. But because if you didn't, then we, 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 our, our, our growth incrementally would be so small. I just read an article recently out of an old school magazine, it's sitting on at, at Rogue right now, 19, from the, the 1983 Boston Marathon when Joni Benoit went, broke the, American, broke the world record from 226 to, 225 to 222. That was a two and a half, two hours, I mean, two minutes and 30 to 45 seconds of a, of a jump. She ran that race going out at 216 paces. I mean, her, her halfway mark was, two, was 108 at the half. It's like, so, what you mental was not in her game she just raced she just went she just raced for it so yes it's more nuanced it's more complicated it's more but you it is going to happen it's going to happen in races and it's going to happen sooner than later in kipchoge in my opinion chris what do you think kipchoge will be racing in berlin going for the world record which is the only feather not in his cap at the moment in terms of being the greatest of all time marathoner is it Physically possible to break two hours under perfect conditions with pharmaceutical help? Yes. <laughs> well, wait, wait, okay, take the pharmaceutical part away because he, at this point in time, you can't, no one can prove that he did, that he is pharmaceutically enhanced or not. But we can prove is that that was not, that, that those conditions in which he ran where he had a car in front of him, which, you know, a few scientists have told us probably was the biggest implicator it wasn't the phalanx of runners around him is that the car stayed in that exact position that nike had done their math on what the science said with windfall drafting, and yeah. every, drafting and everything else but anyway i mean could he do it i mean i like i said I've, like i've said before i believe he is pharmaceutically enhanced but given that he almost did it already yes he could do it i think especially if he had a couple of other guys with him that were staying with him longer in the pursuit. I think the fact that he was so alone, yeah, there were paces around him, but he was basically abandoned by his other two cohorts. In I mean, that he's the only guy who could have done that. Don't you agree? I, I don't know if there's anybody at this point think mentally in that same position. In, yes. You know, if you, if you get a little younger, Bekele and, you know, a, a right. highly Deborah Selassie back 10 years ago, then yes, I agree with you. I mean, yeah, Mo Farah at some point might be in that mix as he extends the marathon. So there could be others, but that kind of athlete is a once-in-a-lifetime athlete. Can he do it? Yes. He, need, he needs perfect conditions, and I think he needs EPO to do it. But can someone break to with those caveats? Absolutely. I, I want to pull back into this question just a little more uh, because I'm, I'm obviously trying really hard to shape the question, but where I'm going is... Um, Okay, so I brought that up because in 1954, when Roger Bannister breaks the four-minute mile, you know, loads of people just after finally break it. And so my, my learning, ex what I took from that is that it was the mind that was holding them back, not the body, right? Their, their mind 
the mind was preventing so many uh, people from breaking that four-minute barrier. Artificially then, created limitations is right. what you're saying. Artificially created limitations. Not I like that physically, Not physically, physical limitations. Exactly. Well, well to so me, it, it's it, it's to me, it's like yeah, they did. It. They he broke the barrier, then others did. But the thing happens in races where, you know, and this is a reason why I think Kipchoge could do it, given that he was pushed in the right way. You can race faster than you can time trial, right? Because you've got someone in front of you that you're going after, and once Bannister broke the record, then everybody else behind him had a new mark to chase. And so that competitive element in us somehow gets more from us. Now, whether that's physical or mental, I don't know. It's, it's not. So basically, dear podcast listener, this comes down to nuance is everything, right? I mean, there aren't, you cannot separate these things. The question of true and false from the very beginning is a whole bunch of horseshit that true and false really don't play it's more some kind of gray space in a continuum sometimes personally instituted where you decide it for yourself the question i asked about faith or or universe having a plan really comes down to a worldview right what you're asking james is is it physically possible for a person to cover that ground in that amount of time Maybe maybe there's gray there, but there's still always gray. So black and white really is yes and no, like true and false questions. I mean, how many times did you take tests where the professor gave you a true or false question? I always just literally went, oh, <laughs> God. Like, there's, like, I know you're trying to trick me. Steve was writing in the margins. I literally <laughs> couldn't stand true or false true, questions. Like, but... and, true and false. <laughs> yes. He wanted a so, microphone in order so, to. So I've got one last question. To round this out and then we can close it out because this is related, but it kind of takes it to the general runner, the everyday runner. True or false? Steve, we'll start with you. Each runner has a physically defined genetic limit. False. Epically, I want color, please. Ep- epically false. Um, because, well I, well, I guess I should say it's possible that they do. People are so far away from what they are capable of that there's we are we are we are so far away from the the answer is you see it the best in what's going on physically at the at the top of the sport even if they're doped or not doped because they're doing what the body what the body is at its physical limitation of doing your average runner absolutely not going to reach their physical capability what they're physically with their physical limitations. So maybe theoretically true, but practically false. Theoretically, potentially true. I choose to feel like, look, over time, I mean, people keep getting faster. World records come in jumps. What happened with with 215 that was run by Paula Radcliffe 10 years ago, 10 plus years ago now at this point, right? Clean or not clean, who knows? But at the end of the day, that was such a leap, such a forward movement. And now it's happening. More and more. Now we've got, we had this last year, so far this year, we've had four or five women go under two, go at or under 217. That one one sets a threshold, the floodgates come in. It comes back to Chris's point, I mean, to James's point, which the mind, once the physical body 
recognizes that's potentially capable. It's a mind sees it's potentially capable. The physical body will do it. Pe- they thought people's bodies would go to mush. They said women couldn't run more than two miles or their bones would fall apart. They would, they would, they would die. They couldn't do it, right? So no, absolutely patently false. Even theoretically, in my opinion, that theoretically it is way more possible that someone could prove scientifically that not to be true but and i will say no one thought kip jogi was going to get anywhere in myself included was going to get anywhere near two hours james what do you think i i do think the question was true or false each runner has a physical defined genetic limit true so I know we're on the central governors coming in. You got a cent- you got not gov- even necessarily central governor, but like I agree with you in theory that uh, it's nearly impossible to find out our max threshold. I don't think that I've ever come close to finding out what I'm ultimate ultimately capable of. Um, and because of central governors, uh, because of limiting beliefs, there's a lot of reasons that we may not reach that in our life. So. Whether the individual runner should be consumed by the thought, no, like don't, don't worry, keep pursuing the next dream, you know, take the last result and build upon it. Uh, however, I do believe that I have one, I'll just never know it. And so much like no matter how hard I work, I, I'm, I'm five foot nine, no matter how hard I work, I'll never be six foot four. That is just not within my control. And so someone who, the best marathon in my life. James, wear some big heels and you'll be there. (laughs) Some stilts. There you go. Come on, you're just not thinking the right way. But in the same way that I've run a 336 marathon as my personal best, um, sure, maybe my body could go 320, 315, maybe even a 259 marathon sub three. That'd be amazing for me, right? But do I believe that if I just continue to work along that spectrum and dedicate 100% of my life in my being to running, I would ever get down into the 220s, 215, 209, be up there with these guys uh, in the Olympics? Absolutely not. I, I, I do think that while I'll never actually find where that limiting threshold is, whatever that exact number might be across a, a racing distance, it's there, and I've got to operate within a spectrum. What about yourself, Chris? I tend to agree with you, James, that it's true at some level, but like you, I also think we'll never really know it and it doesn't matter. It shouldn't matter, you know? And, and, and I would say, you know, we probably can't know. So who cares? Because no matter what, I'm going to try to get faster. And I do think that the general everyday runner should be thinking bigger than they, you know, think they might be capable of at all times. And they should let them lead them, lead, let them lead let that lead them to wherever it may. But so yeah, practically, yes, I think theoretic. there's a theoretical limit in there somewhere, but can but I we, give you, but we can can't I give an exa- example of my personal, of my coaching experience that would give you the reason why I say that that's false. Even though I can say that I understand scientifically, it's probably true. I used to, when I coached at the university of Texas, I'll never forget the first year I coached there. And every year after that, because it worked so well, I would pick one or two athletes each year that I saw who either saw something, a spark in mentally or physically that I would just at some point in time as we were doing strides, we would always, we met four days a week, week, not five days a week, but four days a week, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, and then Saturdays a lot. And we reached and Sunday. So I saw them a lot. We would do strides on the UT's soccer field. And I would put my arm around one girl every 
two or three months as I chose based on just the universe, you know, all my other weird stuff that I just decide that someone needs to be talked to for whatever reason. But the thing I would tell them was always the same is you can be as good as you want to be. I truly believe that to be true. I still believe that to be true of every athlete that I coach. That if they have the ability psychologically to conceive of and believe that they can run two hours for the marathon, while all the physical, at, all the physical things out there in the world would tell them that they can't, I truly believe the human spirit will overwhelm and overcome those physiological limitations. I do believe that they're going to run into a whole lot of barriers along the way that many of them will not be able to overcome. But if they could stay true to that, I do believe that any human being, I think they, that those girls, and I think that every athlete that I coach can be as good as they want to be. Um, and the thing I found with that, some responded to it immensely positively, and some just went completely the wrong direction where they felt. So one saw challenge and another saw pressure. So I was very careful over the years when I started to do that. I don't even do, I don't, I do it very infrequently with Rogue because people's lives are patterned in a way that makes it much more difficult for them to believe that much and to overcome so many of the other variables they have in their life. But I do hope that people, I just have that hope. I don't need everyone to agree with me, Chris. I don't want everybody to, to think that that's the truth with a big T, but more along the lines of if we all operated that way, then maybe who knows what could happen? Who knows what could happen? I, I was about to say we wouldn't have Trump in the presidency. Come on. I we were doing so well, Steve. We were doing so well. Okay, James, final words before we wrap it. What do you got? Any reactions to that or any, any part of the discussion? No, I love it. I, I, I love where you took it because um, while I landed on the belief that, you know, I do have a, a physical limitation in there. I think because it would be so hard to find it that it's better to operate uh, without that knowledge and and pursue the best possible path I can find in life, whether that whether that's applied to running itself or just in life in general. There you go. We'll cool. leave those as the final words. Thank <laughs> you, James, and thank you for putting up with us today. Audience, we really yeah, appreciate it. We asked, it. we made James stretch today. He was a little uncomfortable when we started because we were a little willy-nilly and a little loosey-goosey. <laughs> James, thank you so much. That was a ton it was of fun. Better, it was better because we didn't prepare, I promise you. It was better because we didn't prepare. <laughs> no, I loved it. it I, I love hanging out with you guys, so thanks. So there you go. Thanks, as always, for listening. You can check us out on our website, roguerunning.com, or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook, at Rogue Running. This has been episode 37 of the Running Rogue podcast. We'll talk to you soon. Adios, amigos.